Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. It probably would have been good for me to introduce my family in the first session, and all the ladies know my wife, Sarah, but Sarah, if you can wave. Um, And then Abigail and Jacob and David and Esther. You want to wave, Esther? All right. Okay. That's the family. Um, The Lord has really blessed me with a wonderful wife and children that we're very grateful for. Arrows in the quiver. Um, Okay, we're going to talk about our Augustinian moment today, and uh, if you want to take your handout of quotes, hopefully all of you have one of those, and turn to session four. I have um, the first five quotes are from a little piece that C.S. Lewis wrote. That's one of my favorite pieces of Lewis's writings. Um, And we'll reference those at the beginning, and then a quote by Oz Guinness from a book that he um, put out just a couple years ago. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful little essay, one of the best pieces he ever did, called On the Reading of Old Books. And he wrote it as an introduction to an old book by Athanasius on the Incarnation. He gives four or five reasons why we should power down our iPhones, though he doesn't say it exactly like that, and stick our noses into old books. First, he says, old books are often really interesting and fun to read. Reading Plato is more interesting than reading all the boring things people have to say about Plato. Whole libraries of books have been written about St. Augustine, but not one of them is like the Confessions. So Lewis says, read the old books before you read books about the old books. And this is quote one. I want to read that to you. The average student, he's he's talking about his students at Oxford, um, would rather read some dreary modern book ten times as long, all about isms and influences, and only once in 12 pages telling him what Plato actually said. But if he only knew the great man, just because of his greatness, is much more intelligible than his modern commentator, the simplest student will be able to understand, if not all, yet a great, very great deal of what Plato said. But hardly anyone can understand some modern books about Platonism. <laughs> it has always, therefore, been one of my main endeavors as a teacher to persuade the young that first-hand knowledge is not only more worth acquiring than second-hand knowledge, but is usually much easier and more delightful to acquire. So can I just tell you personally that I went to grad school to study comparative literature at Indiana University? And I I went to study comparative literature because I really loved reading literature. Um, I I had teachers in college at Taylor University in Indiana, where I went to college, who really made me love reading um, actual literary works. And then I went to grad school. (laughs) And in grad school for almost two years, I didn't actually read any literary works. I was reading literary theory. And I was reading Roland Barthes and Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault. And it it was just awful. It was so awful. (laughs) And Lewis says, just read the ancient books. Read, get it straight out of the horse's mouth. Second, new books are still on trial. 
we don't know if they're any good because they haven't yet passed that great test, the test of time. Christian classics like the great hymns have passed through the furnace of the centuries and stay relevant where other books have crumbled to dust or gone up in a puff of smoke. Books like The Confessions and Pilgrim's Progress have never been out of print. That alone should tell us something. Tradition means letting dead people vote too. Our Christian forefathers have voted that these books are worth reading. Um, So, do you all remember this book called The Shack that came out about, what, five, six years ago? So the little blurb on The Shack said that this book will become to our culture what Pilgrim's Progress is. And, you know, five years later, it has, well, they just made a movie out of it, I guess, so there's maybe a little bit more shelf life. Um, But it has less shelf life than The Prayer of Jabez. (laughs) Sorry. Um, I don't know. People still praying to enlarge the stakes of my tent. You know, I I don't know. But... um, You know, the point being, guys, a lot of the music that Christian artists put out today, a lot of the books that Christians write today have a shelf life of a year or two at most. We're talking about a book here. Ah, I don't have it with me. I feel lost. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I may have to look into it later on. Um, We're talking about a book that has a shelf life now of 1,600 years. And so we can trust past generations to kind of weed out the books that may not be so important to read from the books that are. That's what Lewis says. Read old books. Past generations have already given the verdict on them. They're worth reading. And this is quote number two. A new book is still on its trial, and the amateur is not in a position to judge it. And most of us are amateurs when it comes to judging books. It has been tested against the great body of Christian thought down the ages. So books that last are books that are generally good books to read. Not always the case, um, but bad books tend to get weeded out over time, right? So don't trust, you know, the playlist of your favorite Christian station because those playlists change every month. Um, Trust the ancient hymns. Sorry, (laughs) just put in a word for the old hymns of the faith. There's a reason that they're still around. There's... um, there are some good things written today, but there aren't a lot of like permanent things written today. All right? Okay, so third, history is the record of a great conversation. Authors talk to other authors. The library is not a quiet place. It's buzzing with chatter between books. A British monk named Pelagius read Book 10 of the Confessions and got really mad. So he developed Pelagianism. Augustine got mad when he heard about Pelagianism, so he wrote a bunch of books against Pelagianism. Fast forward a thousand years. Martin Luther likes what Augustine wrote about Pelagius, and Erasmus likes Pelagius. And so they have a dialogue called the bondage of the will. So the conversation erupts again in a flurry of pamphlets and books. What? A millennium later. Lewis says that if a conversation starts at 8 o'clock and you join that conversation at 11 o'clock, you'll have missed what people have been saying for three hours. So if you want to understand Luther and Erasmus, you have to go back to Augustine and Pelagius. 
And that means that if you want to understand how things have gotten to where we are in the modern world, you need to go back and read old books. And this is quote number three. If you join at 11 o'clock a conversation which began at 8, you will often not see the real bearing of what is said, Lewis says. Fourth, every culture has its blind spots. We have those blind spots just by being born into our time. The great thing about reading old writers is that they might see clearly in the places where we're blind. They have blind spots too, but they have different blind spots. So Augustine might not see how his emphasis on the sovereignty of grace and giving saving faith does not fit with his view of baptismal regeneration, but maybe he's more sensitive to the, to the destructiveness of sin than we are. We need old books to show us our blindness to the truth. Lewis says that reading old books opens windows in our minds. We need to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. I do want to read all of number four, quote number four there. Every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means the old books. None of us can fully escape this blindness of the 20th century, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we only read modern books. The only palliative, or cure, is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there's any magic about the past. People were not cleverer than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. And that's one of the best things I think C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Finally, Lewis says, when we read the Christian classics, we can find the familiar smell. That's something, that certain something, or like the French say, the je ne sais quoi, right? That bears witness with our spirit that Augustine is our brother in Christ, that he belongs to the great family stretched out over time that Augustine calls the city of God and C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity. Quote number five. Measured against the ages, mere Christianity turns out to be no insipid interdenominational transparency, but something positive, self-consistent, and inexhaustible. I know it, indeed, at my cost. In the days when I still hated Christianity, I learned to recognize, like some all-too-familiar smell, that almost unvarying something which met me. And what he means is, that his introduction to Christianity as an English professor was to read classics of English literature, and many of those classics were written by Christians, like George Herbert, like John Donne, and others. And that was how Lewis was introduced to Christianity. He smelled something in those authors that was a common smell. It was a Christian smell. And when you read Augustine, you get that, you get that whiff that odor, you know, that aroma that Second Corinthians talks about, the aroma of Christ. We have our differences, and we shouldn't accept everything Augustine writes as if it's infallible truth. But what we see in the pages of the Confessions is the amazing grace that saves a wretch like Augustine is the same grace that saves wretches like you and me. 
Augustine is our brother. He trusted in Jesus Christ alone for his salvation. And when we get to heaven, we can ask him about whether he still thinks that way about baptism (laughs) and praying to dead saints. (laughs) And he'll ask us about whether we still think fill in the blank, you know. So when we read the works of these Christians from so long ago, we're strengthened in our faith because we sense that we're part of a really big and interesting family. This is the church triumphant spread through time, awesome, as an army with banners. I thought about Lewis because of this whole matter of blind spots. Our woeful lack of a historical sense today traps us in an endlessly scrolling Twitter feed. One of the things we might be blind to is how much our historical situation in America today parallels Augustine's in the crumbling Roman Empire. We see this more when we read the City of God and see Augustine's argument that Rome fell because she was betrayed by her idols. Could we in the American church be blind to the fact that in America today we may be heading into another dark age? What barbarians are at our America's gates today? Is our society on the brink of moral collapse? Oz Guinness has studied American culture since the 1960s, and he thinks we're living in an Augustinian moment. So the title for this session is not original to me. I got it from Guinness's book. And if you look at quote number six, this is his book called Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. And Guinness writes, We are at a truly Augustinian moment. For St. Augustine died in North Africa with the vandals at the gates. Augustine's privilege and his challenge was to trust God and live faithfully at such a time of turmoil, breakdown and distress, and to articulate a vision of the kingdom of God that could form a pathway to cross the dark ages between the collapse of Rome in the West and the centuries later rise of Christendom. Thus, in many ways, St. Augustine throws more light on our age than Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and all the noisy new atheists combined. He was, to a far greater degree than any emperor or general or barbarian warlord, a maker of history and builder of the bridge, which was to lead from the old world to the new. He wrote that quote just four years ago. Os Guinness looks at America today and says, we're living in Augustine's time, 1,600 years later. A big, prosperous empire that is crumbling beneath our feet morally. The American empire. This gets me to thinking, if America today is so much like the late Roman Empire, what in Augustine's Confessions is particularly timely in our Augustinian moment? If he's living in the same kind of situation we are, a world power given over to amusement and teetering on the verge of collapse, what does he have to teach us? Where does he correct our blind spots? This will probably be different for every reader in this room, But let me end our time together by pointing out five areas I think are particularly helpful to us today. And the first one is simply this. Augustine is a man of prayer. The style of this book is so strange to us, I think, because we don't know what Paul means when he says that we should pray without ceasing. 
Augustine gives us a picture of what it looks like when a man talks to God about everything, as if talking to his best friend. Peter Brown says that Augustine gossips with his God. Keith Green sang a song. You guys remember Keith Green, any of you? Keith Green sang a song that is called, Make My Life a Prayer to You. Augustine's life is presented to us from the first word of the Confessions to the end in the form of a prayer. Every sentence Augustine writes in the book is addressed to God. Prayer is not just a 15-minute chunk he sets aside every day. He prays as he lives. It spills out of him. You prick him anywhere, and he prays. Prayer is not a time that he sets aside from living. Prayer is his life. Moreover, when he prays, it's not just his mind that prays, but his emotions, too. What we see is that in the presence of God, this man is fully alive. There's a glory there, like the glory of Moses who talked with God. And this is what so many of us Christians living in our distracted age are missing today, this glory we see when a man walks and talks intimately with his God. Could Augustine be one of the great thinkers of all time because he constantly talked to a God who knows all things? So first, I think what Augustine teaches us is to pray without ceasing, to talk to God throughout our day, to babble to God, to talk to God about everything, everything, every line in a 350-page book is prayer to God, to his God. And nobody ever wrote a book like this before or since then. Number two, Augustine is sensitive to sin. We smile at Augustine confessing his problem with delighting too much in the taste of food in Book 10 or taking more pleasure in church music than in the truth it conveys. We smile because we think he's confessing things that aren't really sins. We want to say, come on, lighten up. But maybe there's something really sweet here that we miss because in so many ways we're desensitized to the sinfulness of sin. This is one of the things I noticed recently in reading Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Bunyan's conscience is so sharp to sin and his reverence for God's holiness is so great. We want him to cut himself more slack in his torment over assurance of salvation, but The cross means little to those who have never despaired under the weight of their sin burden. And if we think that our culture has desensitized us to sin, we need to remember that Augustine lived in the Roman Empire where sin was flaunted everywhere. So it's not really the culture. Maybe Augustine is sensitive to sin because he's really humble before God. Number three, Augustine understands that our wills follow our desires. Augustine is a theologian of desire. This is really important because Augustine teaches us that people object to Christianity because they take a greater delight in sinning. Their desires enslave their will, and they will pursue their sinful desires every time unless God gives them a new heart with godly desires. So apart from God changing your heart, you can read all the power of positive thinking books you want, 
but you can't change yourself. In one of his little handbooks on what Christians believe, the Enchiridion, Augustine writes that if you really want to know, and here's where the quote begins, whether a man is good, one does not ask what he believes or what he hopes, but what he loves. I'll say it again. If you really want to know if a man is good, it's not first what he believes or what he hopes, but it's what he loves. Now, it's not that what he believes is unimportant, but what are the desires of his heart? Augustine is a theologian that goes right to the heart, and he says that a man lives out of the overflow of his heart, right? Out of the abundance of the heart. And um, so love is the driver. So what Augustine seeks to understand in the Confessions is the desires of his heart. He seeks to desire, he seeks to understand what he loved before he came to Christ and what he loves now. These loves are disordered until they are reordered by Jesus Christ after his conversion. And if we want to understand what makes us tick and what makes our culture tick today, we should ask, what do I delight in? What is my greatest delight? In this way, Jonathan Edwards and John Piper are fellow Augustinian theologians of desire and delight. So our wills follow our desires. And I think that's a key, key thing that Augustine shows us and very helpful for us today. Number four, Augustine diagnoses our digital age's besetting sin of excessive curiosity. It's good to have a curious mind, right? We really see no problem with surfing YouTube channels and Netflix and Google for hours. But Augustine sees a great potential for sin. This is one of the best examples I know of how an old book can correct a great blind spot we have in evangelical culture today. In the second category of sins, Augustine confesses in Book 10, The Lust of the Eyes, he confesses the futile curiosity that masquerades under the name of science and learning, but is really a gorging of the intellectual appetite on what Charlotte Mason called twaddle. We've all heard of rubbernecking at gruesome accidents on the interstate, but YouTube makes a fortune off young people rubbernecking at freaky and dopey things on the Internet. Listen to this quote, which comes just in time for the goth fest called Halloween. What, this is from Book 10. What pleasure can there be in the sight of a mangled corpse, which can only horrify Yet people will flock to see one lying on the ground simply for the sensation of sorrow and horror that it gives them. It is to satisfy this unhealthy curiosity that freaks and prodigies are put on show in the theater. And for the same reason, men are led to investigate the secrets of nature which are irrelevant to our lives, although such knowledge is of no value to them and they wish to gain it merely for the sake of knowing." This is all in Book 10, Chapter 35, if you want to look that up later on. That's a great chapter to read for the Internet age today. For my money, there are few more culturally applicable passages to our digital society than this one. It's a point Neil Postman made about television 
in Amusing Ourselves to Death 30 years ago. He said that TV floods people's homes with infotainment that puts people into a state of mindlessness or amusement, which is literally without mind, mindlessness. Augustine calls this the lust of the eyes. Curiosity for secrets irrelevant to our lives, and few people in the church seem to be aware that they and their children are captive to this sin, thanks to the magical window they carry around in their pockets. Augustine calls it the lust of the eyes. The Incredibles 2 makes it a villain and calls it the screen slaver. Number five. Finally, what, what strikes me about Augustine is his humility before a great God. Here's one of the most powerful thinkers who ever lived, but he feels like a child in the presence of God. Augustine loves the theme of humility, and some of his favorite verses to quote are James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Augustine's whole argument against the Roman Empire in the city of God centers on her lack of humility. She was proud, and her exaltation shattered her. Rome became dominated by her lust for domination. So Augustine writes, and this is from Book 14 of The City of God, a wonderful passage. I should have put it on your sheet, but in a surprising way, there's something in humility to exalt the mind and something in exaltation to abase it. It certainly appears somewhat paradoxical that exaltation abases and humility exalts, but devout humility makes the mind subject to what is superior, and nothing is superior to God. And that is why humility exalts the mind by making it subject to God. And that is a great quote for understanding Augustine and understanding why he is one of the great, greatest philosophers who ever lived. His mind and his heart was captive to God. And what can be greater than God? So like a child, Augustine, if you read any of his writings, like a child, he's just trying to find out more about God. Oh, God, tell me more about this. Tell me more about that. And you know what? He's doing like the greatest philosophies, philosophy in, in the history of Western culture. So far beyond atheists like Friedrich Nietzsche or George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel or Immanuel Kant because of his humble submission to God. Augustine's greatness lies simply in this one fact. His mind and heart had been conquered by Jesus Christ and he was happy to live the rest of his life in subjection to his God. He was a great teacher of rhetoric, the greatest teacher of rhetoric in the Roman Empire. And God had mercy on his wretched soul. God broke his chains and made him into a little child again. 
So he would always live in daily confession and gratitude for God's grace. And God would use the work of these hands to shepherd souls, to write many helpful books, and to build his church. And in our Augustinian moment today, we're grateful, aren't we, for such a clear example of the power of God's love shining through this human life. Augustine was not a pessimist because he knew that whatever happened to the Roman Empire, the best was yet to come for the people of God. And that's no less true for Christians in this day than it was in his day than it was in, than it is in ours. In this day of the declining American empire, we can have great confidence in God. The best is yet to come. And like Augustine, we can just live faithfully in the moment of time that God has called us to live in and trust him for the outcome. So I think this is what he shows us. I mean, just to recap the five points here as we end, um, he's a man of prayer. And we are so distracted from praying, aren't we? Aren't we lifeless as Christians because we just don't pray very much? Would we become fully alive like this man is if we just prayed more? If we spent our time talking to God when we're driving in the car instead of turning on the radio? And um, he's really sensitive to sin, and we have become so desensitized to sin. Is there something there? Do we need a soft conscience? Well, what we see in this book is an incredibly soft conscience, and it's beautiful to see. Number three, our wills will always follow what we desire and what we take delight in. So what do we desire? What do we delight in? If we're Christians, hasn't God given us new desires, new delights? Why do we still live as if we're following the same old delights? Can God grow in us a passion for God like he did for Augustine? Number four, in this digital age, we're endlessly distracted. Some of the things are good to know on the Internet, and there's a lot on the Internet that we don't need to explore, right? And it's not necessarily bad stuff, but it's time-wasting stuff. And it doesn't make us love God more or love other people more. It just takes up a lot of our life. And that's really convicting, what he writes about the lust of the eyes, and I think very helpful to us today. And then number five, this is a man who's totally mastered and totally intoxicated by God and has placed himself under submission to God, doesn't stand upon his great achievements. He could have stood on his academic pedigree and on his amazing curriculum vitae, his resume, it was second to none. He was the greatest teacher of his time. And the first thing he did when he became a Christian was he gave up his teaching position. And we might say, oh, he went too far in giving up his teaching position. But you see, his teaching position had been wrapped up with his sinful ambition. And he needed to renounce that. That's what he needed to do. And we're thankful that he did because then he became a leader of the church for 30 years. 
And no doubt, all of his training and rhetoric and literature helped him when he wrote all those books, right? But he didn't stand on that stuff. And what, what we're impressed with when we read this book is that he has what C.S. Lewis calls a grown-up's mind and the heart of a child. Well, let me pray, and then... Um, is Ben here? Ben, can we sing a song? Oh, you've got songs to sing. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for bringing us together this weekend to have this time to um, think about a man's life. We don't place this man on a pedestal. He's not a saint in the sense, of, in the sense that people use of saints, but he was a guy that you set apart and made holy. And you set him apart for your service in the church. And we're impressed by the way you exalted his mind by humbling him before your presence. And that he was a guy who lived with a constant sense of your presence. And we pray that as we go out of here today, that we would always be mindful that whatever we do, we are in the presence of a holy God we would live in your presence, that we would bask in your presence, that we would talk to you, and we would hear you as you talk to us, and that we would daily just walk in repentance and faith with you and trust you to work out your perfect will in our life and in our culture, in our time, that you would build your church through us. And we thank you for this example of how you took this wretched man and you applied your blood to his life to change him. And we thank you that you do the same with us. In Jesus' name, amen.